everybody. Good morning. I hope you've had a great week. Uh, I don't know where you are in the world, but where we are, we had rain this week. So for us, that's epic. We we had a full day of it. Now, it didn't like rain, rain, but I mean, it rained. Everything got wet. So uh, that's a big win for us. I think that's only the second time that we've had any, uh, all of 2020 that I can remember anyway. So uh, anyway, it was awesome. It's been a good week for me. And there have been other things. It's been a great week. Hope it's been great for you. But uh, let's jump in the Word. If you're joining us today you before, or you've joined us before, you already know. But uh, this is not church. This is our time to lay into the Word together where I'm unplugging and unpacking some of what's said in God's Word. And then we're going to come back tonight and we'll hang out and we'll talk about it. And uh, you're certainly welcome to come. We meet in our home. We would love for you to be part of that. That is the church when we gather together for that purpose. Uh, if you hit us up online, you can find us on social media, you can find our website, you can email us, whatever you want to do. We'll send you how to find us exactly. We're in the East Valley, in Tempe specifically. So love for you to join us. Come be part of what we're doing. Help us make disciples. That If you're a follower of Christ, you are by definition a disciple charged with the responsibility of making disciples. That's the heartbeat of our church. So anyway, we have been doing a study of is God among us? And today we're going to continue that thread of is God among us? In this case, in our weakness. Um, we'll get to that. But the theme we've shared each week and we'll always share is Revelation 21 verse 3. It says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He'll dwell with them, and they'll be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So today, though, as we've been moving through this thread of his God among us, is he not one of us, but among us, uh, we are coming to, we're not covering every instance, but we're covering some of the highlights throughout the word. So we're in Exodus today, we'll be in chapter 3. Let me read a couple of verses there, and then we'll pray and dive in. So in verse 2, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He, Moses, looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. In chapter 4, in verse 13, he says, But Moses said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Please send someone else. Uh, we're going to survey over kind of both of those chapters and cover that thought. Let me pray. Lord, I love you. I thank you for your word. As always, Father, it's your word. I love it. I'm here to learn from it, to share it, and to help others see you through it, as well as um, my own ability to see you through it, the way you help me learn to see you better, to know you better. Help us, Father, all to be faithful with your word, not just to read it, um, not even just to take it in, but to share it with other people. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So sometimes as Christians, uh, we look at each other and think some Christians are way closer to God than we are, man. You know, you get that kind of attitude of, wow, she's so spiritual, or oh, he's so spiritual, or I wish I was more spiritual like they are. Um, but it's not about the things they do. And I know that because 
we are all one in Christ. We all have the same identity in Christ. What it is is it's about who they are living in light of. It's about their lifestyle in light of who they are. Tony Evans shared a cool little illustration about that. He said, in my house, I have a toaster, I have a can opener, a microwave, and a refrigerator. They're all different appliances, but they all work from the same power source. When I plug them in, the refrigerator refrigerates. When I plug the microwave in, the microwave does the microwaving. When I plug the toaster in, the toaster does the toastering. (laughs) His word. And when I plug the can opener in, the can opener does it. its can opening. Each appliance, though different, lives up to its manufacturer's specifications because each appliance is receiving the same power source. So the fact is, guys, we're all lifeless without God. Apart from Christ, we're all lifeless. He is that power source, all right? So when he uses us, in whatever way it may be, big or small, it displays his power, not ours. So let's just establish that right up front. His power, not ours. But the real struggle comes when he does call us for something, but we think he made a mistake because his plan involves something we could never do. Uh, it's, it's not who we are. And so we think God's made a mistake and those words come out of our mouth, but God. But God, really? But God. So today Moses finds himself face to face with God. He, he's there. He's among him. He's face to face with him. And he's being charged by God to do the impossible. But it's in his weakness that God's character is magnified. And so if we, us, if we've had that life-altering encounter with Christ, then when he calls us to do the impossible, when he calls for us to do what is impossible for us to do, then we should be excited to see how his character is going to be revealed through that. All right? And so, is God among us in our weakness? And there's a solid outline here uh, as I'm going to survey these chapters. And we're not going to do it all. Don't freak out. It won't be that long. But God displays his holiness. Then we display our weakness. And then number three, our weakness amplifies his holiness. God, uh, God displays his holiness. You'll see that here. We display our weakness. You'll see that with Moses. And then our weakness amplifies his holiness. So to background real fast, we were in Abraham before. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob's name changed to Israel. We talked about that last week. And then Israel, uh, Jacob, Israel has 12 children. They become the 12 tribes. Joseph, one of his sons, and a famine. Uh, have the end result that the family of Israel ends up in Egypt. You can read these stories. They're all in your Bible in Genesis. You can do it in your own time. But they all end up in, the whole family ends up in Egypt. Excuse me, 400 years later, uh, they've grown to a million plus here. But they're also slaves, and they're being forced to build the cities of Egypt at the time. So Moses is a Hebrew But he's raised in the family of the Pharaoh. Pharaoh's the king of Egypt. So he's raised in the house of the king. But he's killed an Egyptian for beating a Hebrew slave. And he's run away. Uh, He is 40 years old at the time, or was 40 years old at the time. And he's now exiled from Egypt into the Sinai Desert. And while there, he finds a wife. He finds a family. He becomes a shepherd. And another 40 years pass 
Uh, and then we come to Exodus chapter 3. So there's kind of how we got where we are. So God displays his holiness. Look at this. Exodus chapter 3 verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Median. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord, look here, that's the same character, right? Appeared to him. What does appear mean? Saw him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush, of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So when God approaches Moses, first of all, let's clear something up. He's, Moses is already prepared for this. He doesn't know it, but he's already prepared for this. Not because he's a mighty warrior, but because he's an exiled shepherd. That sounds crazy, but that's actually who God needs. He's been prepared for this from his birth. You can go back and read uh, even the way that he was born and, and guarded. But in any event, it's Moses who's been shepherding Jethro's flock here in the Sinai Desert for 40 years after being chased out of Egypt. And it would be now God's flock that Moses is fix, fixing to be asked to shepherd for 40 years in the wilderness as well, the same desert, after they are chased out of Egypt, all right? But at the moment, they're at this Mount Horeb, and he's receiving his call. Now, I don't know if you're doing the math, but Moses is 80 years old here at least. 80. Real-time 80. Now, didn't live to be 800 in his day. 80 years old when he's receiving this call. All right. Horeb is also called Sinai. They're same place. So when you see Sinai in the Bible and Horeb, it's the same place. The Hebrew word Sinai is similar to the word for bush. Bush is Sinai. So God descended in this fire, in fire here. What he's seeing, God descending in fire, this angel, we know it's God. You'll see that too here. But descended in this fire into Sinai, this bush, and he spoke to Moses. But later he would descend on Sinai, the mountain, in fire and speak to all of Israel. Now we're not going into that. That will come later. But why the bush? Why stand in it? That's so weird. Why not stand beside it? Why would why stand? Why the angel stand in the bush? Uh, it says the bush was burning. It doesn't appear to be burning. It's not that it seemed like it's burning. It's on fire. Plain as day. Now, we live in the desert, and uh, I've seen my fair share of wildfires this past year. Wildfires have been uh, terrible. We've, of course, like everything else in 2020, record year with wildfires. But a bush that's burning, uh, particularly a dry desert bush, is just vaporized, immediately hot and fast, burns up. But not this one. It doesn't get consumed as it's burning. And the angel is standing in it. Why? is to establish that the fire is unique, not the bush. All the focus on the bush, it's not the bush, it's the fire that's unique, and more importantly, it's the one standing in it that's unique. By standing in a bush that doesn't burn, it tells you not that the bush is special, but the fire is special. It should be burning that bush up. Uh, verse 3, Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight while the bush is not burned. When the Lord said, watch the wording here, it's wild. When the Lord saw, and that word Lord is singular, that he, Moses, turned aside to go see God, this is plural now, Elohim, God, called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. It's the same thing Jacob said. It's almost, in Abraham, it's almost as though it's going the one, 
God, the one, watched Moses. Okay, he's watching Moses. And when he sees Moses go over to the bush, the ones speak to him from the bush. Yet he, next thing he says in verse 6 is, I am the God, singular. That's crazy, right? The, it, God is watching him walk over to the bush, and then God is speaking to him singularly from the bush. It's wild, it's crazy, it's confusing. What it is is an epic picture of God here. We'll come back to it in a second. Verse 5, then he said, do not come near, don't come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he, which is another key that this is not just an angel. And he said, I am the God of your fathers. Not I am a spokesman for. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look, what? At God. God here, the angel of the Lord again, same character that we've looked at before, but he looks a little bit different this time than he did with Hagar back in uh, Genesis. He looks different than he did with as the man who wrestled with Jacob, for sure. The ground is holy here. God will later say that same thing to Joshua at the Jordan. So it's not about the physical land itself. Obviously, the ground... Uh, it's not the ground that makes the moment holy. It's the moment that makes the ground holy. You know what I'm saying? It's not the ground that makes the moment holy. It's the moment that makes the ground holy. It is the one. It's the person who is present there in that moment. And God's identifying himself to Moses here as wild. In his very opening words, he's saying, you are in the presence of holiness. You're in the presence of God. Take off your shoes. It's a sign of submission. It's a sign of humility. Take off your shoes. When the tabernacle and the temple get built, both of them, the people entering the precincts did it barefoot. The priests ministered barefoot, no sandals. Um, is a holy place. Muslims to this day, uh, they take their shoes off when they enter uh, their places of worship. When they pray on the mats, they take their shoes off. It's a sign of humility. And look, I don't hate that. I mean, I think it says a lot. But Moses is seeing God here, just like we've been talking about. He is seeing God, but he's doing it from a distance. God said, don't come near. And it's like with Jacob when he said, let me go. The dawn is coming. You can't see my face. Uh, there's a fantastic picture, though, like I said, of the Trinity in this moment. You have the angel who's standing there. And, the, and just go with me here. So this is how I wrap my brain around it. Okay, I'm not, not preaching this as reality, but this is how I wrap my brain around it. You have the angel who is like God the Son. He's the word. He's the one speaking, okay? And then you have God who sees him, sees Moses go over to the bush, almost like out of the outside looking in, and he sees him go over. That's like the father looking down and seeing Moses go over to the angel or the son, the word that's in the bush. And then the fire, the unique fire, is a picture of the Holy Spirit. The, fi the uh, Holy Spirit is frequently described as fire throughout the Bible. All three are present. And then he gives the name, which we'll look at in a minute. I am. It's three Hebrew tenses. It's past, present, future. It's is, will, be, or is, and was, and be. Wow, man. I mean, if that don't all blow your mind, I don't know what to tell you. It should. But that's faith. That's faith. Hebrews gives a great definition of faith, but I'll give you mine. It's knowing something to be true while also finding it impossible to wrap your brain around. 
knowing something to be true, but also finding it impossible to wrap your brain around. God is mysterious, yet knowable. He's altogether other than us, yet fully among us. He is frightening and powerful, yet loving and serving. He's fully sovereign, yet he chooses to use mankind. He is without fault, yet he uses broken and fallen people. I mean, it goes on and on. I'll give you some verses that that, that literally should illustrate this point. Isaiah 40, verse 25, God says, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? Says the Holy One. Love that one. Give three examples to illustrate God. Know what I'm saying? Just pause on that one for a minute. Explain, define God, and give three examples. You can't give an example. He's so other than we are. You can't. That's what he's saying with his own words. Isaiah 44, verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am. Which this is wild, by the way. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. There's a plurality in there. The Lord and there's two different things going on there. Yet he says, I am the first. I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So he's, he's speaking in a plural, but he's also saying, besides me, there's none. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it. Say it before me. But look what he said in there too. I am the first and I am the last. I am eternal. That's what it means. I've always been. I will always be. I am eternal. Jesus would use the same language. In Revelation 22, verse 13, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's calling himself the eternal I am. Jesus would do it in other places in John chapter 8. Paul did it in Colossians 1, verse 15. He said of Jesus, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In verse 16, by him all things were created, through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, in him all things hold together. John chapter 1, my goodness, the whole chapter. But I can just zoom in on verse 18. John said, no one has ever seen God, the only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side has made him known. That one verse is mind-blowing. It doesn't even make sense in the way it's worded. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side has made him known. John 14, verse 7. Jesus said himself to his disciples, If you know me, you would know my Father also. So from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Well, Philip gets all excited in verse 8 and says, Lord, show us the Father and, and that's enough. Man, we're good. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? He's literally saying, "How you just, you've been with me all this time, you still don't know who I am? Wow. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's saying, faith is knowing something to be true while also finding it impossible to wrap your brain around. That's the moment that Moses is having. But God also identifies himself to Moses as the God of your fathers. Why does he choose that? Well, Moses was a Hebrew. We know that. But he probably had little faith in their God, honestly. Uh, they were slaves, 400 years slaves. What kind of God would let his people be 400 years a slave? You know, got to be in his mind. He was actually nursed. 
uh, through childhood by his own Hebrew mother. Again, you can read this story. But when he was older, he was and he was around the Hebrews as well, the people. But as they were slaves, and he was a prince because again he was raised in the home of the Pharaoh. So that meant he was trained to follow Egyptian gods, and there were plenty of them. And Moses would have known those gods most certainly. And after 40 years, we read in exile in the home of Jethro, who the Bible called the priest of Median, he would have known their gods as well, for sure. So this God appears to him in the bush here and identifies the place as being holy and tells Moses to stay back. But Moses, and Moses would have gotten that for sure, but I'm sure Moses' thought is, okay, well, uh, which God? Is this Ra? Is this Baal? Is this Hopi? Is this Apis? However you say these Egyptian words. No, this is the God of his fathers. This is the God of all fathers. This is the God. This is the God from whom all of Moses' history comes. This is the God from whom all history comes. And he points out by using this term family, ethnicity, Hebrew family. Uh, Jesus' own commentary on this was that he is the God of the living and the dead. You can read it in Luke chapter 20, verse 37, 38. It's also in Mark. Uh, But Jesus says he is the God of the living and the dead. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac. Not I was the God of Abraham and Isaac. He's still their God, even though they're dead. At this moment, Moses is terrified. Terrified. In fact, Acts chapter 7, Luke records this moment and says in verse 32, when God says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, Moses trembled and did not dare to look. So think of what's in his head at this moment if you're Moses. Obviously, the sight itself is overwhelming, no doubt. But consider what it means to hear now who this God really is. Remember now, he was an Egyptian, and he was the son of Pharaoh. He was a Hebrew by birth, but he was raised an Egyptian. He was the son of Pharaoh who had enslaved this God's people. Imagine what went through Hitler's mind when he stood before Jesus and heard that same line. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish God. I'm not calling Moses Hitler, but you understand what I'm trying to say here. Besides all the rest of that, the last words that were spoken to him, to Moses, were was actually by a Hebrew slave that he rex, rescued who said, who are you to rule over us? And he tried to break up a fight. Uh, but God told Moses who it was that was giving him that authority. Look at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What do I say? Just like Jacob here, what's your name? But this time God gives him a response. God says to Moses, I am who I am. Or I will be as I will be. Same thing. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. Uh, It's a descriptive term here. I am. It's given to display his nature, his character. He's knowable, and here's his character, that he's eternal, he's unchanging, he's outside of time, he's outside of creation. He is. I am. 
Verse 15, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. It's a great point. He has sent me. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So his name here is I am, but it's also tied into God of fathers. Both are who he is. He is the God of their fathers, and he's eternally existent. I am is his name. But not because it was given to him, like I I got my name from my parents. It's his name because he's giving it to us that we can know him. Uh, when you see all caps, L-O-R-D, in your Bible, and I think all translations do it, but if it says all caps, L-O-R-D, then that's that word, I am. That's that name when you see it in the Bible. And the Jews will say, today will say, and, and for centuries, will say Hashem, which is the name, or Adonai, which is Lord, but they won't pronounce this word, which is why your Bible says all caps, L-O-R-D. Because the commandment that says not to take his name in vain, uh, you know, in the years before Jesus' arrival, the Jewish leaders started getting more and more strict on that and ended up forbidding saying his name for fear that you might take it in vain or say it in vain or say it wrong. And so now, as a result, it's unclear how it's supposed to actually be spoken, what it should sound like when you say it. Um, that's why you hear Jehovah sometimes, Yahweh sometimes. I'm not go all into Hebrew here, just to say that uh, we don't know exactly what the word is supposed to sound like. However, it's notable though that the name was given in order to make God personably knowable. Look at what it says in verse 16. He says to him, "Go and gather the elders of Israel and say to them." The I am, all caps, Lord, the I am, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, both titles there, has appeared visually, physically, to me, saying, I have physically seen him and he said to me. So he said, go tell them my name and tell them, say my name to them, and that I said to you. I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I'll bring you up out of the affliction of the land uh, of Egypt to the land, which is the land he promised to Abraham. So in spite of all this, though, and we'll finish up quick. I know we've taken a long time on that first one, but the other two are fast. So in spite of all this, Moses still says, who am I to do this? God displays his holiness. We display our weakness. Look at this. Verse 11, I know I'm bouncing around a little bit, but that's because I'm pulling this together. So in verse 11 of chapter 3, Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Again, Moses' question is pretty fair here. He's 80 years old. He's a 40-year exiled shepherd now in a foreign land, and it's neither Canaan uh, or Egypt. And he's already tried to rescue him once. He tried to break up a fight. He tried to save a guy and he was rejected by them. And then he had to run for his life from the Egyptians. And that incident, by the way, made him a murderer. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, it's a great question he's asking. But there's an interesting play on words here. Moses asks God, who am I? And God says, I am who? Look in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. You have a cool little thing. 11 says, who am I? And God says in verse 14, I am who? God had already said, I have come down to deliver them. He already said that. 
consider Moses' objections so far. In verse 11, who am I that I should go? God says, I'll go with you. In verse 13, what if they ask my name? What if they ask your name? I'm sorry. God gave his name to Moses. Here it is. Tell him. Now he drops three more objections. His weaknesses. Look in verse 1. Then Moses answered of, of chapter 4. I'm sorry. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, but look. But look, but behold, but look, they'll not believe me or listen to my voice, for they'll say, the Lord didn't appear to you. They'll call him a liar. So God shows us Moses some miracles. I'm not, you can read them in your own time to show the people and if they should need it. But obviously it's Moses is the one who needs it. And then look at verse 10. After that, but Moses, but, 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 but Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I, I'm not eloquent, okay? Either in the, uh, past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Look, I, 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 I can't, I stutter, you know, look, my, I can't talk. I'm not, I'm not regal. I'm not a presenter. I can't preach. I can't stand up and I can't do evangelism. I can't talk to crowds. I can't, I can't, I can't. Again, God said, I have come down to deliver. I have come down to deliver. And there's some questionable reality, by the way, to that, um, that argument that's going on there from him. Because Acts chapter 7, verse 22, when Luke is recounting the story of Moses, he says, Moses was instructed in all wisdom of the Egyptians. And look, he was mighty in his words and deeds. So there's some debate to whether or not he was lying to God here or trying to play, play a little bit. But anyway, um, God says, you know, God replies to that and says, I'll take care of it. I'll speak. I'll give you the words. Verse 13. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send somebody else. Just let's just cut to the chase. God, send somebody else. I'm out. Please send somebody else. Man, think about this is in front of the bush. Please send somebody else. And then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Then he gets hot. Then he gets hot. All right, but look here. God displays his holiness. We display our weaknesses, but then our weaknesses amplify his holiness. It's a beautiful thing the way he makes that work. Because look, this was never about Moses, uh, who Moses is, or what Moses is capable of. It's never about Moses' qualifications. It's about who God is and what he is capable of. And the weaker and more unlikely Moses is, the more glory God alone gets for his display of power and authority. The more his character is revealed through Moses' weakness. And God's response to Moses here is amazing. Look what he says. God himself will use Moses and be displayed through Moses' weakness. Look in verse four and verse, or chapter four, verse 11. His response to Moses, the Lord said to him, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? It's, is it not I, the Lord? Is it not me? Did I not make your mouth, Moses? Didn't I make it? Didn't I make it? And then he says, now, therefore go. And I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. I'll be with your mouth. Think about that a minute. And teach you what you shall speak. Think about that when you don't think you can share your faith. Think about that when you're given a privilege to speak or teach or address a group and you don't think you can do it. Think about that when you get the opportunity to tell somebody at the coffee shop about Jesus and you don't know how you're going to say it or what you're going to do. I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Uh, verse 14. 
God said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? Look at verse 15. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I'll be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I'll teach you both what to do. So he said, you can take, you look, you can scoop up your uh, brother over here and bring him with you, and I'll give it to both of you. How cool is God? God's own character is on display here. In verse 17 of chapter 3, he said, I promise I will bring you out of affliction. I promise I will bring you. I promise I will bring you out of affliction. Not, I hope Moses doesn't fail me so you get out of affliction. I promise I will bring you. Again, some of the most beautiful words in the Bible. They're, they're the cornerstone of the Christian faith. They, these words. They're what sets apart the God of the Bible from any other belief system. You know which ones? Verse 8 of chapter 3. I have come down to deliver them. I have come down to deliver them. I have come down. You're never going to get to God. It, it, it doesn't say, if they can hopefully deliver themselves, I'll be waiting. He said, I came down to deliver them. So let me close out with this amazing hope that's in the text. Verse 24, Exodus chapter 2 Verse 24, the verse that leads into all this. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant, verse 24, with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Look at those words. God heard. God remembered. God saw. God knew. Exodus 3, verse 7, the Lord said, I have seen. I have heard. I know they're suffering, verse 8, and I have come down to deliver them. Consider how far above creation the creator of the universe is. What a statement he's saying. Consider what it actually means that he came down. This is not just a rescue mission, guys. This is love. He came down. He came down. And how beautiful that we are his instrument for accomplishing his kingdom on earth. And just like the bush, he stands among us. And he he burns within us. Your, his Holy Spirit's within your heart if you're a believer, if you belong to him. Yet we're not consumed. Even though we have sin, we're not consumed. And others are going to turn aside to see the great sight, his character, the miracle that is within us. Man, that's a beautiful thing as believers. If you're not a believer, maybe you've never seen the burning bush that's not consumed or a flaming angel that told you to take your sandals off. And uh, In fact, uh, as far as I know, only one person ever actually saw that. Um, but that same God has been seen has been revealed, has been known by countless millions of people for millennia of generations. He is the God who has seen, has heard, and has come down. He is Savior. That's what the cross, that's what the manger, which Christmas is about to happen, that's what the manger and the cross is all about. He came down as a child born among us in order to serve us.
How so? Well, we have an enemy we cannot defeat. That's sin. We can't do it. And the wages of sin is death. We have no hope of defeating a grave because we all sin. But he went to that cross on our behalf. That cross was his mission from day one in order that we might have his righteousness. He bore our sin. And he came out of a grave, conquered a grave. We have no chance of beating. He conquered that grave to offer to us the same hope. And when we put our faith in him, when we believe fully something that we can't possibly explain in detail, but we believe it to be true, we know it to be true, his Holy Spirit fills us and that fire of God seals us, not just for heaven, although that too, but for the opportunity to go to others And let God use us to set them free. Man, what an awesome, awesome thing. I pray today that's you. If that's you and you want to give your life to him, it's not complicated. Just tell him. It's about that simple. Just own up to it. Lord, I I know I'm a sinner. I know it. And I give you my life today. I give you my life. Lead me. Show me what I do next. Ask him that. Tell him that. Tell him you want him in you to deliver you. And then hit us up. Let us know. We'll help you figure out what your next steps are. I don't care if you're in Tempe or not, but especially if you are here. Uh, let me pray for us. Lord, I love you. I thank you as always for your word. It is so amazing. God, I pray today that we walk out uh, into the world carrying your Holy Spirit in ways that other people can see like a fiery bush that's not consumed and that they're drawn to hear from you, not from us. God, I pray that if anybody today has given their life to you, that you would open their eyes, you would pour your Holy Spirit into their heart, Lord, that you would set them on fire, that they would look for opportunities and look for churches, hopefully ours, but any church that's close that can help them become a disciple who follows you with their life and makes disciples. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.